0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thanks, Dean. It's a lengthy passage, but um, as many of you know, we're committed to God's Word. That's why we want it spoken. That's why we sing it. That's why we preach from it. And so thanks, Dean, for reading Psalm 25. Well, this morning, as Ryan had mentioned, we are beginning a new sermon series on suffering. There's several reasons why I'm going to take time to explore suffering from God's Word. The suffering of God's people is all over the pages of Holy Scripture, all over so, what you're going to hear in the next several weeks is only going to be a drop in the bucket of what the Bible says about suffering. There's a lot. Therefore, if the Bible does speak about suffering, it is important to hear what Scripture has to say, which leads me to another point as to why we're going to be talking about suffering. Suffering's a part of life. you haven't suffered, you will. At this moment, you know, I'm looking at a bunch of f- friends and family who know suffering, who know deep troubles, who know what it's like to be crying at 2 a.m. in the morning. And it seems like the dawn will never come. We live in a broken world where suffering seems to be around every corner. Turn the corner, suffering. Turn another corner, more suffering. Walk down a little bit, take another corner, suffering. But here's the deal. God wants to meet people. This is the beauty of who God is. He wants to meet people in their brokenness and in their suffering. Indeed, he does do that. He meets people right there when it hurts the most. Indeed, it's in a person's suffering where God's love, his love for you, is most present. God is your hope for a day when there will no longer be suffering and brokenness and pain. He's our hope for that day, but until that day, he breaks in and he brings comfort and peace. You know, before sharing a third reason to preach on suffering... I want to show a connection between what the Bible says about your suffering and your lived experience. The Bible, as I said, has a lot to say about suffering because God is aware of your suffering. Even more, God is present in your suffering. So we should not be surprised that the Bible has an entire book of a man who suffered greatly, like Job. (laughs) Go read the book of Job. Don't tell me that guy didn't suffer. We have the book of Psalms filled with, with the, the emotion of people who've gone through suffering. We read in First Peter about how Christians are called to endure suffering. Like I just read First Peter on uh, Friday morning and just read right through it, five chapters, and I was just amazed, you know, passage after passage about how we're called to endure suffering. And of course, we read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about how Jesus needed to suffer and die to redeem sinful humanity from the power of sin and hell. The entire Bible is geared toward explaining why the suffering of Christ needed to take place. Like Genesis 1-1, where are we headed? We're headed to the cross. And all the suffering you read about in Scripture informs how you understand your suffering. Now, here's a third reason why we're going to talk about suffering. It's a practical reason. Um, you won't hear much about this in the weeks ahead, but I think it's worth mentioning just in the light of American Christianity and th- things that are being said and things that pastors are preaching. In particular, prosperity gospel preachers and, and churches pronounce messages like, your best life now. It's a popular book. Become the Better You. The Power of Favor. Power of Thoughts. Now, all these book titles might sound nice as standalone principles, right? It might be good, it's fine. But here's what people like Joel Olstein, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, yes, I am naming names this morning. This is where they get it wrong when it comes to suffering, they get it wrong. This is what they tell you. This is what they're not telling you. How do you live your best life now when you are diagnosed with stage 4 cancer? They won't answer that question for you. How do you become the better you when you are a missionary in Haiti? This is going on right now. You are a missionary in Haiti. And you and your family have been captured by a gang for ransom. What does it mean to be favored by God when you find out your spouse is cheating on you? I want to answer that question for you. What good are power thoughts when you learn your closest family or family member or friend has walked away from God? And here's what all these garbage preachers are not telling you. God is less concerned with taking away your pain but he meets you in your pain and suffering. In a world of brokenness, suffering, and pain, God is faithful to draw close to you as you draw close to him. As a child of God, God hears your cry for help. He sees the tears. When your world comes crashing down, God says this for Matthew 11, Come to me. Like, if you're in that place this morning of suffering and pain, I mean, we're going to look at Psalm 25 in a moment, but man, can you internalize this passage from Matthew 11? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus, he will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Or God says that to you this morning. Come to me. It's not about living your best life now. It's about coming to the cross. In the next several weeks, and, and Ryan did mention this, but I'm going to repeat it for you. You're going to observe these patterns in this sermon series. The book of Peter will be used in worship and song. We're very intentional about that. First Peter. First Peter was written to a church undergoing intense persecution and suffering. And as I said, first Peter connects your suffering to the suffering of Christ. Each sermon will be from a different psalm. Why go to the psalms? Well, the psalms are real and they're raw. It just comes across that way. They are full of emotion and truth, right? Like God created us as emotional beings. We don't need to run from that. We want to rightly align our emotions with truth, and that's what we read in the psalms. The Psalms speak to the head and the heart. Many of the Psalms are, are written because of lived experiences. If you talk to a Christian who has endured intense suffering, they probably have a Psalm that they internalized in the midst of their suffering. And I'm fully aware, aware that are other passages to draw from, but I think the Psalms will prove to be a great comfort for us and equip you, Christian, for the day when you will suffer. There's a... Final observation you might make in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at Isaiah 53 every time we celebrate the Lord's table. That's very intentional. We always want to end with the suffering of Christ and reflecting and remembering how Christ suffered. Okay, we will begin by looking at Psalm 25, as you know. Why are we going to Psalm 25? Why have I picked this particular psalm over, you know, 149 other ones, right? Well, it's a popular psalm because of verse, verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 are beloved and memorized by many Christians. We'll get to that in a moment, or you can look it in your Bible right now. Uh, you might have the plaque, you know, hanging up in your house, verse 4. But also, you know, verse tw- uh, Psalm 25 is kind of misapplied. People read verses 4 and 5, and they misapply it because they don't understand the context when discerning God's path for your life, right, verse 4, make me know the path, O Lord, should you move or stay where you're living? What kind of career should you pursue? That's what, that's what people are thinking when they read verse 4. Parents, well, how do you educate your kids, right? When you read the verse disconnected from the entire psalm, these questions do make sense, not necessarily unbiblical, right? Knowing the path of God for your life means seeking him for answers of your everyday decisions. However, we can't do that. The entire context of Psalm 25 matters. As a matter of fact, when you understand the entire context of Psalm 25, you actually begin to see the depth of verse 4 and 5, these beloved verses. Now, one final tidbit about Psalm 25, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig into the details. Psalm 25 is an acrostic poem. Um, If you're an English major, you're going to love this. Um, acrostic poems basically take the first letter and then create a line and then take, you know, letter A, create a line letter B, take a line, letter C, create another line in the poem, same thing, what's going on here in the Hebrew 22 letters going down the alphabet, so it's kind of an interesting nugget, okay, let me pray I'm going to get into Psalm 25, Heavenly Father I and many here are broken And we come wanting you to speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, help me to speak well, speak truthfully. And I pray that those listening by the power of the Spirit will be touched by your word. We know that you are a God who delights to meet people in their pain. We are trusting that you will do that this morning. Amen. Thanks for bearing with me to kind of lay out the sermon series. I do want to begin with with a story. I want to share with you part of the story of Joni Erickson Tata, Joni Erickson Tata. She was an athletic young girl and enjoyed all the things that kids love, including swimming. But at the age of 17, Joni Erickson Tata was paralyzed after she awkwardly dove into the water. In a matter of moments, this athletic kid's life was changed. She became a quadriplegic. She was no longer able to use her legs and her arms because of a broken vertebrae. The accident caused deep depression in her life. Not only did she fight for her life, but she was fighting for her faith in God. After I watched her, her testimony on YouTube, Tata imparted precious truths about the sovereignty of God, suffering, and spiritual awakening. She kind of put it in that trajectory this the sovereignty of God, suffering, and spiritual awakening. She realized God does not delight in her accident, but he delights in using the accident to draw her into a closer and more intimate relationship with God. She, dis- she discovered God shows up in weakness. He shows up in weakness. In 2010... So that was in the 1960s, right, when that happened. In 2010, Joni erickson Tata was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. I mean, we pause, we look at that, and we're like, man, you've been dealt a tough hand, right? That's a lot of people's perception. How could that be? And once again, in 2010, she was fighting for her life and for faith in God. These two things collided. She overcame the battle. While she clung to her Savior Jesus, she said, God sovereignly meets people in their suffering with the purpose of spiritual awakening. God meets people in their suffering for the purpose of spiritual awakening. If that's true, you know what that means? Your suffering's not a waste. Therefore, it is important to steward well the suffering given to you. Tata's message and testimony is moving. As she drove me and, of course, others back to the scriptures, she helped me see that suffering isn't to be feared. Oh, human human beings have a fundamental fear of suffering. We don't know what to do with suffering. We do everything we can to avoid suffering. We have insurance policies. Like We try to insure everything in America. Why? To mitigate risk and potential suffering. But Tata says, suffering is a textbook teaching us who we really are and not who we think we are. Suffering is a textbook teaching us who we are, not who we think we are. The textbook teaches us how desperately we need Jesus and we need to deny ourselves. Tata's message was ultimately this, we are called to live Christ-like in the midst of our suffering. Now I plan to email that to you along with some other resources on suffering this week. I think it's worth your time to watch the clip for 45 minutes. Now I don't know what Tata has to say about Psalm 25, but here's how King David's life and words connect with Tata's story. Every person has a different story to share, a path of pain filled with tears. David was not a quadriplegic, but he lived in constant fear of his life because someone was trying to kill him. From what I know, Joni Erickson Tada does not need to physically run from fear of her life, but her suffering is because she couldn't run at all. These stories of suffering and yours are not to be wasted but like I've said, draw you closer to God. Psalm 25 shows how you can draw close to God in the midst of your suffering. So here's what we see in Psalm 25. There are enemies from the outside and enemies from within that entangle the soul and cause pain and suffering in your everyday life. The path of deliverance from pain and suffering is redemption offered by Jesus Christ. Sometimes the redemption of God is a present reality. And as we're going to see, redemption is a future hope of what's to come. As I've said, Psalm 25 is written by the great King David. We don't know the exact time or circumstances of why he wrote this psalm. I tend to think the circumstances was when David was running from Saul. So the psalm indicates his trouble and suffering, and it indicates David's trust in God. Here's how 19th century London pastor Charles Spurgeon described David in this psalm. He says this, David is pictured in this psalm as a a faithful miniature, Just just a humble dude, right? He's been humbled. His holy trust, his many conflicts, his great transgressions, his bitter repentance, and his deep distresses are all here so that we see the very heart of, quote, the man after God's own heart, end quote. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says, David is a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14, yet his heart was complicated and conflicted, right? We we tend to romanticize figures in the Bible, but here we see David just laying bare, He is conflicted. His heart is so complicated. He wants to trust God, but pressure from external enemies and internal struggles dilute what he knows to be true. He needs help, so he cries for help. He needs help, so he proclaims truth to himself. Before looking at more of the details of this psalm, is it not a true statement that our heart is similar to King David? Like, just evaluate your own heart. I mean, I think about what's going on in my heart, and it's just like, pff, just layers, just complicated. It's emotional. Cancer hits the body along with your faith in God. The unexpected car accident takes you for a, for a loop, and you fight to believe that God is still good. Out of nowhere. And for no reason you realize someone is spreading lies about you. They're gossiping about you and it cuts deep because that person could be like your best friend. The depression kicks in, right? The perpetual sin takes root and all of a sudden you have another crisis of confidence. And the list goes on, right? The list goes on. Here's the point I want to make. You don't need to have it all figured out. I'm saying that very clearly in this church. You don't need to have it all figured out. You do not need to have it all figured out to be a man or woman after God's heart, especially in your suffering, especially when you're broken. No, all you need is to be humble and just be willing to fight and cling to Jesus. Just trust in God. Just fight for that. That is what God wants, wants from us. That's what we read in Psalm 25. As I mentioned, I think the context of this Psalm is King Saul attempting to murder David. We read in the book of 1st and 2 Samuel that David was constantly on the run from the armies of Saul. Saul wanted to kill David, and David had opportunities to kill his oppressor, yet entrusted the entire situation to God. What does David say in verse 2 in light of all that? Oh my God. I trust you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. In verse 2, we read of this this humble plea for help. Help me, O God. David's situation, just like it doesn't look good. He was the chosen king of Israel, yet he was constantly evading death. So, in in our fight for faith, we need to take on a similar posture as what we read in verse 2. A humble plea before God. You know what that does sometimes? It softens the hardest of hearts. Oh, God, help me. You know what that also indicates? You're dependent upon God. You're dependent upon God. In verse 2, and again in verse 19. David is clear about the external factors conflicting his heart, right? His enemies or foes hate him. They want to see David go down. David's situation is is war and the enemy is looking at him from the other side wanting to take the shot. Just waiting to take the shot. Now, I've never been to war. I've never had anyone chase me like what was going on with David at the time. I don't know what it's like to live in fear where I'm always on the run. But I think most of us know what it's like to feel the effects of an external enemy or external suffering or external persecution. We all know what it's like to be chased around emotionally, mentally, or physically by an enemy or something we perceive to be an enemy. In other words, only King David is able to properly address his, like, his lived experience, right? But that doesn't mean the circumstances in your life can't cause similar pain and similar suffering. As a matter of fact, I could stop preaching right now and we could do the, the Christian camp thing. Get all the chairs, throw them in a circle, right? We all be looking at each other, talking to one another. I could ask this simple question or just make this simple statement. Describe for me the hardest moment in your life. That one statement. Describe for me the hardest moment in your life. Just one. And you know what we'll find? Story after story of heartbreak. Story after story of pain. Story after story where people are just asking questions. Why, oh God? Which is an appropriate question, by the way. We see it all the time in Psalms. Why, God, did that happen, have to happen? One person to the next, would be you hear about stories of fighting for faith. And there will be a story about how God has met a person or a couple in the darkest of days. We would be, be here all day, all day, if we did that exercise. And it's in the darkest days. It's in the darkest days when verse 4 and 5 of Psalm 25 is most meaningful. Now let's finally go to those verses. Some of you got a plaque on your Wall with this. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. In the midst of David's suffering, that is what he's asking of God. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Make me know your ways. God, because I can't see the way forward. The pain is too great. Teach me your path, oh God, because every indication seems like I'm going down a path that is causing more hurt. Lead me in your truth and teach me, Jesus, because if I lead and teach myself, I don't know where I would end up. And help me to wait on you, O oh God, because I just want all of this to be over. Pain and suffering because of external circumstances are real. They're real. And the path of deliverance is through greater trust in God who is at work in the midst of pain and suffering. I'll more on that in a moment. What I love about Psalm 25 is, is it handles the complexities of suffering within the human heart. There are external factors that cause suffering, but there are also self-induced reasons for a person's suffering. David is experiencing external and and internal suffering at the same time. In other words, he can be his worst enemy because of his sin. Consider these words from Psalm 25. Remember not my, the sins of my youth or my transgressions. That's another plea of David and in verse 17 and 19. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Why? Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Here's one of my takeaways from these verses. We need to be honest with God about the sins in our life. The word sin is such a dirty word these days. No one wants to use it, even in churches. We don't need to talk about sin, no. We need to be honest with God about the sins that we struggle with. Your sin, my sin, can be the source of our greatest trouble. And the first step toward getting on the path of deliverance is repentance. Repentance, turning from sin and toward God, is a step toward personal revival in the heart. Do you want to experience personal revival in the heart like David? It's repentance. Turning from sin and turning toward God. I do not think David's personal sin is the result of his external struggles, right, in this particular psalm, while internal sin can cause uh, external suffering, That is not what's going on here. It seems like David is throwing himself on the ground, face down, exposing and expressing his entire heart to God. This man has been beaten and broken down, and he's just crying out for help. Americans are so proud, right? We could be so proud. I don't need help. I know I'm that way. I don't need help from God. I got it. I'm going to pull up the bootstraps. That's wrong. You need help from God. You need help from God. Internal or external struggles going on. You need help from God. In verse 7, and then in verse 18, David humbly goes to the Lord for forgiveness. It's not that just that perpetual sin that needs to be forgiven, but all his sins need to be forgiven forgiven on what basis is david able to seek forgiveness from god like how can he even do that to a, in, in front of a holy and just god what's the basis of that here's the rest of verse 7 and verse 10 he pleads forgiveness according to your steadfast love remember me says david for the sake of your goodness O lord he's pointing to god it's because of you that i can be forgiven and in verse 10 All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David's so hard, is striving after God, but realizes he's a sinner and he's banking on God's steadfast love. He's banking on his faithfulness to forgive him of his sin. All his sins. Your spouse is not your savior. Your spouse or your friend. Ultimately, it is God that you need. No Messiah complexes here unless we're talking about Jesus Christ. We go to him. He's the one who is completely, 100% faithful. David knows there's nothing within himself that is good. He knows that it is only the faithful love of God that he stands a chance to be forgiven. Repentance in the heart and a willingness to change helps remind David and you of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. In my head, like when I'm writing these words and reading this passage, in my head I just imagine King David like sitting in his tent or whatever, just distressed and weary. He's fully aware of the external situation. He's not naive to the fact that Saul wants him killed. He's not naive of his own sin. He's very clear. And all of a sudden, more more of his past floods his mind. Tears begin to well up. And then he is sobbing. God promised David to be king, yet here he is, tired, vulnerable, And confused. How in the world can a person rise up out of this this place of despair? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Where it's like, how do I even get out of this place, oh God? The struggles are so real. The night seems darker than usual, and the night seems to never end. I know you've been there. I've been there. In all my years of pastoral ministry, I've seen so much uh, suffering and heartbreak. I've seen godly men and women walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, verse 4. And it's a pastoral privilege to walk with those who are suffering. As I've attempted to care and console those who grieve, I've realized One shoe does not fit all in terms of providing care and comfort, right? Some people grieve longer than others. One person's trial might be greater than the next person. Suffering and pain can reveal lack of faith, or it can reveal greater faith. But there is one response for a person who suffers that is consistent in the Psalms, and I think it should be a part of all of our lives. It's declaring a creed. When you suffer, it's important to remind yourself what you believe about God. You declare your creed or your truth, what you know to be true. You need to remember God's promises and his faithfulness. Psalm 25 is filled of creedal, what I call creedal reminders. David declares to himself with tears, good and upright is the Lord. Man, life stinks right now. I am in pain. I am suffering. I am tears. I'm constantly on the run. My sins are flooding my mind and my heart. Yet God is good and upright. That's what David says. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. David knows he's a sinner, but God is good and upright. And still, God is going to instruct this sinner. Here's another truth. God leads the humble in what is right. And he teaches the humble his way. There's another creed. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. David knows he's supposed to fear God and God alone. Not King Saul. Fear God and God alone. I mean, these are just a few of the creedal declarations in the psalm. Declaring what you know to be true about God might not stop the suffering. It might not provide the answers. However, reminding yourself about the truth of God moved the soul into a place of peace and comfort. I mean, that's why we, I'm constantly saying, get your head in the scriptures. Get your head in God's word. Put it into your heart. I mean, listen to it if you need to. Don't like reading? Get the dwell app. Get it into your head and get it into your heart because in those moments of suffering, these truths are going to provide so much peace and so much comfort. And that's what David needs in Psalm 25. He needs to remind himself of what he knows to be true. When he does this, it, it moves the soul to delight in Christ who suffered and had a far more, more suffering than he could ever imagine. I mean, think about it for you, Christian. Christ suffered and died for you. And yet, and yet, the end of the story is not perpetual suffering, whether caused by internal or external sources. The path of deliverance from suffering is through redemption. Here are verses 20 to 22. O oh, guard my soul, And here's the plea again, deliver me, God, deliver me. I cannot deliver myself. You need to deliver me, God. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. He knows his only hope is God, God himself. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Verse 22, now he's thinking collectively, but he's also thinking about himself. Redeem Israel oh God, out of all of its troubles. There are three aspects of our life where we seek deliverance from our suffering through redemption. Number one, there's a spiritual redemption, right? We need that. Number two, there's a physical, emotional, or even say psychological suffering, and we need to be redeemed out of that. And then three, a future physical redemption. briefly talk about these three particular areas. When you've been redeemed in this world through the blood of the cross, Jesus secures, secures your soul for all eternity. During this time and age, God is spiritually redeeming his children for their good and for his glory. When you have been redeemed, your soul can rest at peace because of what God has done to forgive and provide a future hope for your life. Your soul no longer needs to suffer because of the cross, regardless of your external circumstances or internal situation. You could be at peace because of God and what He has done through Christ. That's spiritual redemption, right? We've got the name in the church, Redemption Hill Church, for a reason. What about physical redemption? Or you can call it emotional or psychological just call it physical suffering for now. When we talk about suffering, our physical bodies and emotions come into view. God has created human beings to function in a particular way for his glory. But when, what happens when the gears break, right? And things don't go according to plan. When someone loves you, betrays you, and there's tears or whatever. We all have a story. What happens? Because the soul has been redeemed, yet physical suffering remains, we might instinctively know that there is something better beyond our current experiences. Can there be a time when the redemption of the spiritual and the physical come together? Will there be that day? And the answer is yes, there will be that day. Everything you experience on this earth and in your lifetime points to a future redemption of all things, all things. There will be a day where there will be no more sin, no more brokenness, no more suffering. Why? Because God is on mission to redeem, restore, and reclaim all that is his and transform all that is his into perfect purity and goodness. There will be a day when Jesus will come back and finish what he has begun. I mean, King David could look forward and and bank on the promises of God that his present sufferings will one day cease. Joni Erickson taught her the same thing. She knows there will be a day when all things will be restored. All things will be redeemed for God's glory. So our present suffering leads us to dwell on Jesus, to know more of Jesus, to know what Jesus cares about, to conform more into the image of Jesus. You see, your life isn't about avoiding suffering, but it's to fall in love more and more with Jesus who saved your soul and provides comfort and peace in the midst of your suffering. Your present suffering points to a future day when all will be redeemed and restored by Jesus. There will be no more enemies from the outside, David knows that there'll be a day when those enemies will no longer exist. You will no longer be entangled by sin, which can cause suffering. The path of deliverance from pain and suffering is through redemption provided by Jesus Christ. Let's pray.